You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 128, with me, Victor Marks, and Neil Hughes. Hey, Victor, how's it going? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's another day in paradise. It is. Support for today's show comes from Shutterstock. Each business needs high-quality images to attract and keep customers. Whether you're making brochures or ads or putting the final touches on your next tweet, the visuals you choose are proven to make a big difference. Get started today with a 20% discount at Shutterstock.com slash Apple Insider. You're currently using an iPhone SE. I am. And I'm using an iPhone 6. Mm-hmm. We know that there are new devices coming at some point in the future, probably this fall. What are your plans when the fall rolls around? What are you personally going to do? Not just what <laughs> around what work's happening, but, but what's your device of choice in the fall? Uh, well, that's a tough question uh, and one that I honestly hate to answer um, uh, uh, because... Uh, you know, we're kind of in the silly season right now. There's a lot of hot takes out there about, uh, uh, you know, what people think about the iPhones coming out this fall, whatever. And I, I get that. But it, it's really unfair to start bashing Apple for decisions that they have not made yet. You know, uh, last year it started with the headphone jack. Uh, this year it is with the home button. Um, you know, I think that they handled the headphone jack pretty well last year. It didn't really strike me as that big of a deal. Um, you know, they shipped it with the adapter in the box, which is what they should have done. Um, nobody really had that much of an issue f- f- with it, aside from some nerds on the internet that complained. But vast yeah, only the consumers. people that wrote like eight thousand words. About yeah, right. Yeah, a big a big think piece about it, right? I mean, yes. whatever. Um, so that, I say all of that to say that um, I have thoughts on ditching the home button uh and i'm passionate about the issue but i'm reluctant to dismiss an unannounced product with unannounced features based on the rumors at this point uh and that is the very reason that i haven't done a think piece on this on the site now having said that on the podcast we're a little more um loose here uh, uh with how we do things it's not uh, the same as more, the site more it's more opinion open, based yeah a little, transparent a little more opinion based uh, as opposed to the straight news that we tend to do on the site um so i mean i'm i don't mind uh getting into the hypotheticals on here more so than we do in in text form but uh i i say all that just to preface uh, in saying that we have no idea what's going on having said that um if there is an iphone 8 this fall uh, with no home button, um, with no touch ID at all, and it just uses a facial recognition feature to unlock your phone, I have absolutely no interest in that phone whatsoever. None. Okay, so so let me back up a step. Yeah. This is one of the rumors that we've been following, mm-hmm. and it, it says, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there know this rumor, but, but to just reiterate, this rumor says that one possibility is in the quest to get an edge-to-edge display that uses maximizes the amount of display on the surface, that the home button goes away and therefore Touch ID goes away with it, and that it uses the camera for facial recognition to unlock and authorize uh, Apple Wallet use and things like that, Apple Pay. So yeah, let me give a little bit of background here because this is this is how things went down. Let's explain. On Monday Tell we me. had we had two different reports that came out on Monday that kind of went into this. The first came out in the morning from everybody's favorite analyst Ming Chi Kuo of KGI Securities. He came out with a series of predictions about this fall's iPhone, and he's usually pretty accurate when it comes to stuff. Now not perfect, but pretty pretty good. 
And um, he said that he does not expect there to be a Touch ID sensor on the so-called iPhone 8 this fall, just because Apple hasn't been able to get it to work through the screen efficiently. Uh, There's just been a number of problems with it. So Apple just said, we've got this facial recognition technology. We're going to go with that. That report came out. Then that afternoon, it was followed up by everybody's second favorite uh, Apple rumor monger, uh, uh, Mark Gurman, who now works at Bloomberg. Um, And Mark Gurman said that uh, Apple is looking to replace Touch ID with facial recognition and could do it as soon as this fall, but it's still to be determined. But eventually, the company sees facial recognition being the successor to Touch ID, um, something that makes it, you know, just simple, easy, unlock the phone, whatever. Now, hold up, because because Mark Gurman doesn't have as great nearly as great a reputation for being accurate. He's he's good at pulling out rumors, but in terms of having accurate information, he, he's a lot l- further down on the totem pole, wouldn't you say? I, I would say so. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to cast uh, stones in a glass house here, but um, I mean, he did have some good uh, predictions last year on AirPods before anybody else. But generally speaking, if you're talking about hardware uh, uh, rumors, you know, sometimes a, up to a year out, Ming-Chi Kuo is the guy that really is the one that breaks those. I'm just trying to, to frame this so that when we talk about where something comes from, we, we know how much credence to give it or how seriously to take it. You know, you're, you're not going to – do you take something like this to the bank? Do you make an investment in production on it or are you taking it as just another piece of information that may or may not – Prior to Monday, I would have said, if you told me this rumor, I would have said complete hogwash. After both of these sources weighed in, now I say definitely a possibility. Right. But is that a 20%? Is that a 40%? I mean, I can't put a number. I don't know. Who knows? You know, we we don't know. But all I know is you got two people here. Now, German didn't say that this fall's iPhone isn't going to have Touch ID. He said that Apple's looking to eventually replace it with facial recognition. But you take that in tandem with Ming-Chi Kuo saying that he doesn't think there's going to be Touch ID on it this fall. Uh, You know, the the picture is going to get clearer as we get closer to September. Maybe it turns out that they had something up their sleeve all along and they get it to work. Having said that... A Mark Gurman thing could be not 2018, it could be 2019. Right. He's left himself open for that. Yeah, it could be, you know, keep it vague and, and and then anything could be right. I... Regardless of if and when they make that switch, I would not be happy with getting rid of Touch ID exclusively for facial recognition for a number of reasons. But the biggest one for me, uh, more than anything, is um, if it works as well as they claim, which the claim is that you will be able to unlock your phone by not even having to pick it up. You can just leave it laying on a table and that will allow you to unlock your phone. Okay, (laughs) Um, think about the potential security implications of that. Even if it works instantly, recognizes you with a mustache and glasses and after you get a haircut and all that stuff, right? All right, Tom Selleck. And and doesn't um, and doesn't, uh, um, you know, uh, unlock when a high quality picture of you is shown or something like that. Right. Okay. fine. So you're going to put on your Detroit Tigers hat and look like Magnum PI, and it's going to recognize you and unlock the phone. But, I mean, think about the security implications of that. Anybody could just grab your – I mean, imagine you're getting mugged. Imagine that you get arrested, and they want access to your phone. You have a right as a citizen to say no, and obviously if somebody mugs you, like, you know, you don't want them to have access to your phone. All they got to do is wave their phone in front of your face, and it unlocks. And – the legality in the United States so far has played out that it's it's totally legal for them to take your thumb and and unlock your phone with you there. Yeah, except the security uh, 
features with iOS make it so that after 24 hours, you have to enter the password. So if unless they can get a warrant immediately, then they can't unlock your phone because they cannot force you to give up a password. Apple's already addressed that problem. And, and they've also addressed it by allowing you to turn these features off in settings. So presumably if it's facial unlock, you could turn that off as well. Now imagine that you got arrested. The police took your phone and just waved it in front of your face. Well, now they've got it unlocked. Or somebody you know, robs you on the street and your phone is useless to them unless it's unlocked. Well, now they can go in and do it. I mean, you know, there's all kind. I mean, you could, if it will recognize your face laying on a table, then you can theoretically just walk by a phone and have it un- unlocked for somebody to just pick up and, and, and do something with it. Right. So this is why I say that I don't like going down this path, because the truth is we don't really know how this will be implemented. And we don't know what other potential security precautions Apple might use if they were to get rid of the fingerprint sensor. We don't even know that they're going to get rid of the fingerprint sensor. I think that face facial unlock has some valuable uh, uses. I imagined prior to these rumors that Apple would offer that, but do it like in tandem, like a super security combination of facial like a two unlock. factor mm-hmm. combination of facial unlock with with uh, fingerprint. Maybe even getting rid of the passcode entirely. Um, that would be pretty cool too. But um, you know, <laughs> we don't know, and you can't really say anything definitively at this point because it's just rumors. And to freak out at this point is way, 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 way premature. Now, come September, if all these rumors prove accurate and this new phone, you know, only unlocks with facial recognition, there is no touch ID, and the 7S, for some reason, moves the fingerprint sensor to the back, I'll be the first one complaining about it right here. You know, you touched on something. You touched on passwords and passcodes. Yeah. And passcodes are, how to say this best, passcodes are a very poor method for proving identity. Yes. First of all, people want to remember a passcode, and so they create passcodes that are memorable to them that are not very secure. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, no one ever wants to change theirs. They always want to reuse the same ones. And third, the more digits and more places you use, the more secure of a code that it is in terms of trying to be guessed by a computer. Mm-hmm. But it's it's difficult to get people to want to create those, and so they end up using repeating digits. Uh, it's just not a great thing. And then you wind up in the situation like I ran into last night where I was working on an event and we needed to use an app to collaborate. And uh, one person, one woman who was volunteering could not get the app because she literally had not used the app store in ages. Uh, when she lasted, she had her thumbprint used to, to, to work on it and could not remember app store password. Right. And she said, if you just wait half an hour, my husband will be here. Maybe he remembers it. <laughs> right. And, and as, as awkward as that sounds and as, as completely unrealistic as that sounds to some of our listeners, I'm sure, it's totally plausible that if you never download an app, why would you know your app store password? Mm-hmm. Right? Something you are, something you have always as a part of yourself is a better method of proving identity than relying on, on something that's in your mind. If you're the type of person who rarely enters your password to buy something with someone like my, my mother, for example, has an iPhone and she can never remember her password and then she'll call me and ask what it is. You know, she downloads an app, you know, once every couple months kind of thing. And she has apps on her phone, but it's not like she's going and seeking them out. And you got we've talked about this a few times on the podcast, remembering what's for power users versus what's for the masses. Um, the type of stuff that we're talking about is a lot of people just aren't doing it. And so facial recognition makes a lot of sense there. The the first time anyone uses Touch ID, what's the first thing they do? They press the home button, right? 
they, they mm-hmm. push down on it and they screw it up. And then the, and then iOS is saying, no, 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 don't do that. Just rest it. Don't press the button. Just rest your finger there. Well, they changed iOS to reflect that, right? Now they have mm-hmm. compressed unlock. And so it works. And if you have an iPhone 6, then it makes absolutely no sense because uh, the, the way that the touch ID works and, and it doesn't have the raise to wake feature. But anyhow, um, this is something that makes sense from a uh, user experience perspective. If you're looking at it from the perspective of let's make using an iPhone or any Apple device as secure and as simple as possible, using facial unlock to replace touch ID makes a lot of sense. But there are certain use cases where facial unlock is very bad, just like there are certain use cases where using your fingerprint to unlock is very bad. You know, um, you're working out and your fingers are sweaty. It just doesn't work. Uh, you're wearing gloves, uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, so you need to have these alternatives, whether it's, you know, biometric to factor authentication or whatever you want to call it. I think that having both would be good, but I think that getting rid of touch ID, especially for situations like you're paying with Apple pay, um, and maybe your fit, your face is not in a position where it can be scanned because you're reaching across a table or something. Um, I, I think that that's a pretty poor, uh, use case that you would have to, you know, tilt your phone, make sure you're in there, make sure it's well lit, all that kind of stuff. Uh, even if Apple has some sort of magical wizardry that it works great and, and, and it doesn't give you any issues and it's accurate and it's secure and all that. I just foresee so many situations where relying on facial recognition would be very bad. Well, I am, I'm hesitant enough to say, you know, let's, let's wait and see what actually gets implemented. Right. You know, there, there were fingerprint readers before we got the one in the iPhone. Right. They didn't work especially well. No. There's been facial recognition to unlock laptops for years. Lenovo tried to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first thing that everyone proved was that you could take a photograph and unlock with a photograph. Right. Right. Presumably, that's not what we're going to get. So I'm going to hold all of my reservations back and not speak them because it, it's, it's going to be more interesting to see what actually gets released and talk about it when it's real. Right. It's just that there are certain situations that I see where there there is no technical way of overcoming it. You know, like I I hear your reservations. Let's see what we get. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'm I'm very curious to see how that works. Yes, you know, one of the other stories is the idea that Apple's going to go all OLED for the displays with the 2018 phones. That makes sense. Um, the the idea is that this year the only OLED phone is going to be the high-end iPhone 8, and it's going to be ridiculously priced. Um, and we'll get into that in a bit with another ridiculously priced phone that was just announced. But um, and that the there will be regular phones that will be successors to the iPhone 7 that will continue to have LCD displays. But Apple over the years introduces technology and then brings it over to other platforms. So they introduce it in a platform where it makes sense the most. Um, and then they bring it elsewhere. And there's many examples of that. One of the more recent ones is Touch ID itself. It was originally introduced on the iPhone, eventually came to the iPad. Now, as of last year, it's on the Mac. And you can use it to log in and you can use it for Apple Pay and all that type of stuff. Um, you know, 3D Touch, Force Touch, all that, run down the list. So to take their uh, utilization of OLED, introduce it on the Apple Watch, then the flagship iPhone, then bring it down to the other iPhones, that makes sense. Um, and is probably... Uh, something that you will see, if not in 2018, then then soon after that. 
Um, the rumor that came out is that Apple wants to do it in 2018 so that there will be three new iPhones. They didn't say what sizes, but three new iPhones that all have OLED displays. Um, the only question is whether or not the market can make enough capacity for Apple because Apple is liable to ship, you know, 75, 80 million phones in a single quarter, uh, which makes it a little difficult to produce that much OLED panel. So we'll see. Um, but that's not going to happen this year. That's a 2018 thing potentially. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about things like the full OLED screen. We're talking about the 3D sense for facial recognition. We're talking about uh, fast charging through USB-C power delivery over the lightning cable. Uh, it's there's, there's a lot of potential for a really improved iPhone. You know, that's, that's one of the things that happens is every year we get one of these things. And every year there are a whole class of people who look down on it and say, well, it's not that much of an improvement, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's the rumors leading up for, for this next one seem to have a lot of good things in them. So we'll see how much we actually get, but uh, th- this does not look to be a small release. No, this is going to be a big deal, and that's why it's expected that it's going to cost, um, some of the rumors have it, over $1,000. Uh, uh, John Gruber of Daring Fireball said this week that he would like to see what Apple would, could do if they just decided to sell like a $1,500 phone, like price it like a MacBook Pro. Yikes. <laughs> well, based on his logic, you know, if you're willing to spend that much money on your MacBook Pro and you don't use it as much as you as use your phone, uh, why wouldn't you want to spend that much money on your phone? Why wouldn't Apple want to push the price higher? Y- yes, but we we know that the market for phones is quite large. The mar- market of number of people spending 1500 bucks on the laptop is a lot smaller. It is, but it doesn't have to be a large market for Apple. We've seen that time and time again. I mean, the Mac does very well for them, makes them a lot of money. If they could sell 5 million phones in a year at, you know, 1500 two grand, do you think they'd do it? It's an interesting question. I, I, I don't know that they would. It's, you know, what if you made the very best thing and then no one really wanted to buy it in the end? Right. What if what if there wasn't enough people to support it? We, we've seen them do boutique kind of things before. You know, we used to see them do them in the Power Mac line way back Home when there's the Power Mac. Thing. Yeah. And it is. And at the three hundred dollars or four hundred dollars that they're going to ask for it. It's um, it's definitely a niche. But there's there's experiments and is taking the iPhone into being a computer replacement an experiment or is it trying to cover all segments? I'm very curious about the pricing of this phone because I could see it going either way, right? They're introducing all this new technology. It's going to be all this stuff that we haven't seen before, high-end, gorgeous, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, people are going to freak out if it's charged if they're charging that much. But by having you know a 7S model, then that kind of satisfies the people that think it's too much money. But you could see why and how they could charge a lot more money. On the flip side, I keep thinking back to the rumors of the Apple tablet before the iPad was announced. And everybody was thinking it was going to be 1000 bucks. It was going to be $1,200. And then they came out. And one of the biggest surprises of that event was that it was only $499. So... Uh, you know, I, I think that they could potentially surprise and do something, you know, uh, to price tiers of 650, 780, and, and 900 or something, whatever they are, they are now, plus another 120 uh, for the new model. Um, and then I could see them going the other way and just saying, screw it, let's charge two grand. Yeah, I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of them doing a phone that costs that much. And I'm uncomfortable with them doing that because, it, well... <sighs> You know, it means that people are going to do monthly payments that are, you know, half of what they pay for a car payment kind of thing, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, your, your, your cheap car is 200 bucks and you're going to pay a hundred bucks a month for, uh, Apple pay, you know, a hundred bucks a month for the, uh, what iPhone upgrade plan, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think it's for most people, but I, I think it's worth considering because, you know, I've said on this podcast before that if Apple sold a LTE equipped Apple watch that, uh, had an always on display and lasted a full day, I would easily spend over a thousand dollars on that watch without question. I mean, that would be a product that I would really like to have. Now, you know, if they made some mythical phone that was something that I really wanted, you know, really high end cameras, maybe even some modular options with the camera, uh, smaller display, you know, edge to edge display, long battery life, that sort of stuff. And they wanted to charge $1,500 for that. I would definitely consider that. Hmm. Because it's, you know, you think about it, it is, it is, Apple says this a lot, but it's true. It is the most personal computer they've made. You know, it's your, the most personal item. And it's true. There are things that I used to have to get on a desktop computer to do that I now do on a phone in my pocket. And the value of that, it, it keeping me connected and, and giving me the ability to do those things. Uh, I, it's hard for me to put a price on that. It's, it's certainly yeah, worth it's, more than the $400 they charge for an iPhone SE, I think. <laughs> but you are not 100% iPhone. You don't use the iPhone for all of your tasks. No. And there are some tasks that you simply could not do or could not do as well as you do them on your desktop as you could on your iPhone. And, I, and I'm not sitting here and, and advocating for a $1,500 phone. I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit. And I'm saying it's an interesting thought experiment to say, what would they have to do to A, justify the price and B, make you want one at that price? Right. And, you know, this is one of the things we've heard in the past few months has been that that phones, all phones are are becoming commodities. Right. And so, yeah, yes, if you made such a high budget phone, you packed all the things in that made it worth that, that that made it cost that much. It would it be a commodity? And the answer is, well, probably not. But, uh, <laughs> but so today we've got Red, the camera company Red, which kind of burst onto the scene, you know, 10 years ago, nobody had heard of them before. And they came in with these outstanding 4k cameras. Now they're used, uh, you know, to film big Hollywood movies. They're making 8k cameras. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was shot with their 8k cameras. They're not a phone company. And today out of the blue, out of nowhere, uh, they say, yeah, we're going to make a new phone coming in 2018. It's going to have a holographic screen that works without 3d glasses. And we're going to charge $1,200 for, for the base model. And if you want to get it with a titanium frame, we're going to charge you $1,600. Well, I think, first of all, that, that Apple Insider headquarters needs to purchase two of those. Yes. One for you and one for me. Absolutely. The questions I have around this are, so what makes this not a commodity item? What, what are they thinking? And I, I think the first thing they're thinking is that they're seeing a lot of movies that are shot on iPhone. You know, Sundance has this happen every year where there's there's a couple of movies shown at Sundance that were shot on iPhone. Right. And Red wants to be the camera of choice for the filmmaker, just like, you know, it used to be that, that Ariflex lenses and Panaflex or Panavision used to be in the 80s and 90s, right? Mm -hmm. That when you get a camera, you get a Red camera. If you're shooting with a phone, you shoot with a Red camera. And so that's what they're doing here. The question is what what makes this a not a commodity phone besides the fact that it's got a red camera in it i <laughs> i don't know what to say about this product i mean i'm excited about it just from a gadget perspective uh i feel like something like a, a holographic screen almost feels like you know a gee whiz feature not we've, a we've seen that in you remember there used to be these android phones that came out on sprint yeah. and sprint had 3d displays on them 
And they were a little bit of a gimmick, but they they had them back then. I'm <sighs> I think that Apple has the right approach with AR kit and you know, the value that that offers in the form of an app versus having to buy, you know, an entirely new device with a new display and spending some insane amount of money to get it. I don't think that holographic displays are going to catch on and I don't think that they really have much value even to filmmakers. However, I have no idea what this thing looks like or how it works. So once again, in the same way that I won't dismiss Apple for what they haven't announced yet, I'm not going to dismiss uh, uh, Red for what they haven't shipped yet. Um, if they even bother getting around to shipping this thing, if they can, if they can ship it, it yeah. it's, the whole thing is very strange. I can't dismiss well, them because they're a legitimate company that makes a great product, but I have no idea what this thing is or why it exists. Well, there, there's also a content play here. Sure, they're they're going to have a content store, and it's not going to just be about people selling their stuff on the store. It'll be about you know both directions. It's not just people downloading; it's people uploading. You can upload creations, you can download compatible movies, documentaries, things like that. So, but this is not a mass market thing. This is for somebody who wants to view their content is, in 3D before they upload it. I feel like this is a phone for filmmakers. This is an amateur right. filmmaker's phone. And the idea is you like making films, you like your phone, you're going to shoot on your phone. You should do it with a RED so that when you get to uh, become a real filmmaker, you're shooting on RED cameras that, that you rent from people, that you upload to the RED channels instead of uploading to YouTube, right? Just just as some people will use Vimeo over YouTube because Vimeo has higher quality video and it has a community of people who are interested in film as opposed to everyone else in comments that are terrible. That They're trying to, to build this sort of community around RED that doesn't really exist right now. But why why make it a phone? Why not make it like a, a phablet, a tablet, or something like not a like a like a, 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 because you know very well that everyone carries their phone all the time. Eh. But people don't always carry tablets. Yeah, I mean, I, are you going to shoot with a tablet? You're going to be that guy shooting with the well, tablet. Well, it doesn't have to be a tablet. I would say call <laughs> it a tablet and make it the size of a phone. I, you know, it's just like when I think phone, I think you know built-in earpiece and hold it up to your face to make calls. I feel like a device like this should be a connected device with a data plan that you can pay for, and then if you want to make a call, you got to plug in some headphones to use it. Like you shouldn't be holding this thing up to your face. Yeah. Do you remember the Nokia game systems that were also phones? The side talking. Uh, um, side talking uh, was the term coined by Cable Sasser. That was actually a website back in the day where people would upload cable, photos of themselves holding that was regular Cable Sasser's website. Side yes, talking. they they would hold up regular electronics to their face sideways, so they'd hold up like a Sega Dreamcast console because the the Nokia N gauge required you to hold it sideways up to your face in order to make a phone call. Yes, that was Cable Sasser's website side talking but nokia was trying to do game systems and was trying to spin this whole idea about mobile gaming i I feel like red is trying to handle the mobile filmmaker which has become a thing kudos to red i don't think this is going to do very well um but we'll see what it is Uh, it seems like too many gimmicks packed into a phone uh and maybe they should have just focused on a super mobile consumer focused camera well, so this is the thing, right? We talk about how, we were talking about high-end phones and about Apple going super high-end, and I, I think a lot of the world is is in that iPhone SE range and more affordable, right? The majority of people are are aiming at developing world, are aiming at things that they can have, and while that developing world is aspirational, you know, it's it's really cool to walk around with an iPhone Seven on a on a belt clip so that everyone can see that you has the have the iPhone Seven. 
right? Um, that that's that's not the largest customer base. The, the, the pricing on this and this is this is a niche product, right? This is a very niche product for a customer. They they're pretty sure they've identified. But I mean, at twelve hundred dollars, how good of a camera could it really be? I mean, I could go to Best Buy and easily find you a camera that's going to cost more than twelve hundred dollars. You know, that's a good question. I can't remember. So there's the Moto that accepts the Moto mods. Yeah. And one of the accessories, one of the mods for it is a Hasselblad camera back. And so you can turn your Moto into a good camera. You know, I, I, I said this a few years ago and, and breaking out my uh, classic uh, first generation iPhone for our 10th anniversary thing last week. I was thinking about it again. It, yeah, it's a little chunky. It's a little big. Uh, I've got it here. It still hasn't run out of battery from when I charged it. It's uh, right yeah, now. because it's also not on a cell network. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> 23% right now sitting here. But I've got it in my hand right now, and it's like, okay, yeah, it's chunky. It's big, but it still it fits in my pocket fine. If if someone took, like, this form factor and put, like, a huge honking camera in there with, like, a, a optical zoom that, um, uh, you know, was equivalent to or better than the iPhone 7 Plus and put a big battery in here and all that, you could have, like, a photographer's dream camera, something super portable uh, that would last, you know, like, four days on a single charge type stuff. Now, how big is the market for that product? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I would love it, but I, I'm crazy. So when you talk about how big is the market for that, you got to identify who has the problem. And that's why I kept saying the Sundance filmmaker, right? The aspiring right. filmmaker, because they're going to buy a phone. They're going to have a phone. Presumably, they probably have an iPhone already, yeah. especially since we, like I said, at, at these film festivals, we see things that are shot on iPhone. And Apple's known for their camera quality. And yeah. And Apple's known for their camera quality. So they, they've identified who that person is who that customer is and what their problem is. Their problem is that they want to shoot good for good good film, right? Apple's lens is not an anamorphic lens, right? It's a 16 by 9 lens. You really need to be shooting that wider screen if you're going to be doing film. And so this is an opportunity for Red to build in the anamorphic right into it. This is an opportunity for them to reach to exactly who they're trying to target, right? This is an opportunity for them to, to sell it directly into film schools. They, they have uh, a good chance of getting this in front of the people they need to get in front of, as opposed to trying to do what Samsung did a few years ago, which was taking a camera body and building an Android phone into the back of it and saying it's an Android-powered smart camera. I, I still think it should be an accessory. Asking people to replace it and make it their main phone seem, seems weird. I think if they had come out and had a $1,200 low-end consumer-focused camera, um, you know, uh, to take on that sort of market, I think that would have been more interesting. But regardless, at that price, and with the rumors of the iPhone 8 being a thousand and up, um, we may be seeing kind of a seismic shift coming in the. This may be the the beginning of a shift in how smartphones are portrayed and how they're used and how they're purchased, where. Uh, Apple's been doing it with tablets for a few years. So again, if they do this, this wouldn't be that big of a surprise, right? Apple is pushing the iPad Pro price higher and higher and higher. And, you know, this latest uh, iPad Pro costs more than the one before it. It used to be the iPad started at 499 Now you can, yeah, you can get the 329 smaller one, but if you get the iPad Pro, you're at 650 and up. You add on a keyboard and, uh, and an Apple Pencil, and you're looking at 1000 bucks for your iPad Pro. The, the iPad is more expensive than it's ever been for the for the flagship model uh and that is probably you know something that may even continue going forward and so as we talk about apple bringing other technologies and strategies to other devices why not do it here why not push higher in the phone market they they started with the plus 
that was $100 more. Now, last year, because the dual camera, they acted, they added another $20 on. So now it's $120 bucks more than, than the smaller model. So what, where do you go with a pro model? If you have an iPhone Pro this year, how do you differentiate that in the pricing? Hmm. What's, what's going to create more value for, for stockholders, I wonder? I mean, having a more expensive phone... Would that raise the price? Would it be? Would it having a less expensive phone be more valuable? What's What's the right answer from that perspective? I mean, I think you know, from an investor's perspective, you really want to see Apple maintain their margins. I don't think the average selling price of the iPhone matters that much as long as the margins on products stay high. Apple. You know, when things are really good, they're at like 42% margins. When they're quote unquote bad, they're at like 38% margins. The expectation is that the iPhone is closer to 50% margins and uh, other products are, are lower. Um, you know, if they could maintain the same level of margins on an iPhone 8 and charge 1500 and sell, you know, 10 million of them in a year or whatever, I think it's a huge win for, for investors. Let's shift gears. Let's change topics a little bit. Let's... Um... Oh, you know what? Before we do, I have one last thing we have to talk about on this, which was there's been a little bit of confluffle this week about the position of the Touch ID sensor. Right. And we talked about it going away from the front, but what we didn't mention is that there were rumors talking about Apple placing it on the back of the phone. We've mentioned this in weeks past, but it's come up again, and this week seems to be the week that everyone wants to talk about it. So, you know, I said when I pick up an Android phone that my finger tends to fall where the fingerprint sensor is on the back of it. Some of the other folks in the Apple Insider HQ staff seemed to believe that I'm wrong, that it's it's difficult to grasp the phone just right to have the finger fall on the fingerprint sensor. So where are we? Do we think that Apple's actually going to put the sensor on the back of the phone? <laughs> I, I wrote an editorial earlier this year saying that there's no way they would do it. So I may end up having to eat crow on that if it ends up being the case. I still maintain that it would be a very stupid idea. I think it would be an idea where... They would get a lot of flack from from gadget nerds about having copied Android. Again, I think that it doesn't bother me as a user. I can grab the Huawei Nexus 6P and and have my finger find the back of it just fine. Yeah. The same for the Honor 6X, where the fingerprint sensor is directly below the camera. It, ju- it my finger finds where the hole is on that. It works. You know, the recessed part for the fingerprint sensor is not hard to find. Do I want them to do that? Not especially. Uh, the biggest argument that I've heard is that people like to be able to just dip their finger into their pocket or thumb into the pocket and unlock it in the pocket as they're pulling it out. Yeah, That doesn't seem like something that's that important to me, but there's there's something very consistent in terms of design about having had it on the front. Um, it's I like very much use. about having – I like having cases that are completely closed on the back. I know there are several people who like to have cases that show the Apple to show everyone they're using an Apple phone, but I I like having a case that's completely closed on the back. And so taking it off the front because you don't like cluttering up the front seems like a very Johnny Ive thing to do. Putting it on the back does not seem like a very Johnny Ive thing to do. I agree. I I think it would be a mistake. I think that having it on the front is very good for the user experience. Uh, Again, going back to what I was saying about how the the advantage of facial recognition is it makes it easier to unlock. What makes this... um, home button rumor interesting is that the expectation has been that the iPhone 7S so-called uh, was going to have the exact same design as the iPhone 7 but that leak that came out there were some photos supposedly of, of uh, phones in production um, was suggesting that uh, perhaps the iPhone 7S will also see a redesign um, and have the fingerprint sensor moved to the back and not quite a full edge-to-edge uh, display 
but one with small enough bezels that they could no longer fit the home button on there. Um, I, I think that it's a user experience nightmare. Um, I think that it would be less intuitive for a lot of people. I think it would defeat uh, some of the value of Apple Pay. Um, I think that it would be a problem, and I think it would be a mistake. Um, and I would be very surprised if Apple did it. That's why I wrote that editorial earlier this year, and I, and I maintain that I don't think they should do it. I sense that you're not a fan. No, I am not. <laughs> I am not. Let's talk about HomePod. Sure. So we have a patent application that was released that Apple talks about having a the adaptive acoustics that they've they've shown and talked about in the uh, keynote. Mm-hmm. And so this invention covers the method of equalizing and optimizing loudspeaker output through the use of microphones, DSPs, and computational algorithms. Yeah, pretty this is pretty neat peek is, in how it works. Yeah. Now I, I want to say this is not the first time we've seen something that's described like that, right? The Libertone product. The, the original Libertone speakers mm-hmm. um, would use microphone data fed to internal circuitry like a DSP, which mm-hmm. then would equalize and use the DSP to filter the sound based on the positioning of the speaker. You know, they would do that based on how close or how far it was from a wall and what the reflections were like to make it sound appropriate. So it's it's not something you know, like many inventions, right? They refer to other inventions too. They they fall back on implementations that have been seen before. Mm-hmm. The, what's what's question what's interesting here is not just the claims that they're going to do that, but how they're doing that. You know, they have six different microphones. They're doing audio beam forming. They're doing multi-channel echo cancellation and those are things that seem new to me. Yeah, um the, you know, this is a lot of behind the scenes, you know, pull back the curtain on how it works. Um, the proof will be when it ships in December. So we got a ways to go, but I have no doubt that this thing's going to sound very good. Um, it, you know, for $350, I don't know how many of them they'll sell, but I think that I think it's going to be a cool product. Yeah. You know, the, the question is, is we know that the dedicated Apple fan is going to buy it. We know that the person who is interested in the security of of HomeKit's going to buy it. There's still a lot of people questioning, should they buy this or should they buy Sonos and how Sonos compare to it? Um, I think it's one of those things that Sonos may do better in terms of sound quality, Mm -hmm. but in terms of automatically equalizing for placement, I don't think Sonos does that at all. So there's there's some crossover, but not a lot of crossover. Not to mention that this has the W1 chip, so the ease of use is going to be, you know, there, there's a certain point where you just want to stop hacking with stuff and trying to get it to work and fiddling with it and whatever, and you just want to use your phone and listen to some music. And uh, if you can afford it, this will be the product for that. Now, speaking of, of just hacking on stuff and trying to get it to work, now you're doing stuff with Raspberry Pi and HomeKit. Yeah, so uh, I'm working on a feature now, and we'll probably be running it this weekend, so uh, keep your eyes peeled um, on AppleInsider.com. But a little teaser of what it is, um, I got an email, I I live in New York City, and I got an email a couple weeks ago from Con Edison, which is the power company here, um, and they offer a device that uh, basically takes a dumb window AC unit um, and turns it smart. And so for those of you who, you know, live in, in more uh, uh, modern places of the world, I suppose, who have central air, uh, this doesn't really mean a lot to you. And you can get your Ecobee or your Nest or whatever and, and do what you please with it. 
But for those of us who live in these old buildings, you know, mine was built in the 1890s or whatever it is. There is no central area. I have a window unit and it's not particularly efficient. Uh, but Con Ed wants to cut down on some of the power drain and stuff. So they subsidize and sell you this device that connects to your Wi-Fi and it acts as an interim between your window AC unit and the wall power. And what it does is it allows you to track your usage and also turn it on and off. And it has a built-in temperature sensor. So you can say... When the temperature reaches, you know, 74 degrees, turn off the air conditioner, save me some electricity. And then when it goes above 74 degrees, allow power back to the air conditioner. So basically taking a dumb device and turning it smart. Now, the reason I say all this is because not only does it work, you know, with iPhone and what have you, but uh, thanks to the magic of uh, HomeBridge, which is a uh, enthusiast platform uh, that allows you to connect non-HomeKit devices to HomeKit, uh, you can actually connect this smart AC adapter that comes free for people living in New York to HomeKit very easily. And because you can run HomeBridge for free on your Mac, uh, this is something that you could try. So if you've never dabbled with HomeKit, you don't want to spend the money on the accessories because they're expensive or whatever, which, which they are. Uh, this is a very easy way for you to kind of get your foot in the door with HomeKit, give it a shot, try it out, um, and, and see what you think of it. And it, it works pretty well. I mean... Um, I have it running on a Raspberry Pi, so I don't have to boot it on my Mac, and it can just always be running even when I'm not home. Um, but that's not necessary. Um, you can just run it on your Mac and, and test it out and see how it works. So for me, um, you know, I, I have it uh, installed on there, and I can see the current temperature um, in the room. I can see uh, I can raise or lower it um, over the internet even when I'm not home to say you know turn it on or off. Um, you can you can do everything that you could do with the remote control that comes with this device, but you can do it all through HomeKit with your voice, whatever. Very cool. I want to read that when we publish it. I want to know more about who's making that unit that Conet is sending out. Yeah, it's called the um, Think Eco Smart AC. Branding is so hard. <laughs> it's just a plug. Uh, it's got a little uh, LCD screen on it. It comes with a remote. Um, and you can, you know, raise or lower the temperature with the remote. And then on the screen, it'll show you what the current temperature is. The screen is on the remote, I should say. Um, and then there's a little indicator button on the little plug that goes through it. But yeah, the, the app, you know, you pull up the app, it shows you how much electricity you've used over the month and, you know, where you could be more efficient and stuff. But yeah, as long as you register it after you get it, then they don't charge you for it. I think it's like a $70 value and Con Edison gives it to you for free. And HomeBridge is free. It requires a little bit of hacking, a little bit of knowledge with Terminal and stuff. Um, but, you know, if you can follow some tutorials on GitHub, it's not too difficult. Um, and it definitely, you know, like a fun weekend project. Excellent. The uh, Apple financial results for Q3 are coming up on August 1st. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to mention that. Now, Q3 is usually a slow quarter. Isn't that right? Yep. And I would suspect that this one will be as well, because as the iPhone goes, so goes Apple. Um, and I think that Tim Cook hinted last time uh, that it could be even worse this go around because there's so much anticipation for the iPhone 8 that uh, the rumors have been affecting sales of the iPhone 7, which is why after a pretty breakout quarter and record-setting opening quarter for the iPhone 7, uh, they actually dipped the following quarter to uh, below. So... Uh, before below what they were the year before. So I think you may see flat to slightly lower iPhone sales this quarter um, just because hype is building up so much for the iPhone 8 that a lot of people are holding out. But to offset that, um, you have 
refreshes to a number of new Macs uh, that came at WWDC. So they'll get a couple months out of that in the quarter. MacBook Pro, even the MacBook Air got updated, 12-inch MacBook, iMac. Um, so a little bit of a bump there, but the iPhone really dictates Apple's bottom line. So, um, I think it'll be, I think everybody's just looking to the next quarter. Anyhow, I think whatever happens is going to come out in the wash. The stock may move a little bit up or down, but it all eyes are on the September quarter and really the December quarter, which will be the first full quarter of new iPhone sales. Excellent. Now we were talking about HomePod. And, and we've talked in the past about Alexa and Google Home and some of the others. Uh, what, what is the Samsung rumor? What's, what's, what's going on with Samsung here? So a couple of reports came out this week about Samsung is working on their own smart speaker to take on Alexa and HomePod and everything else. Um, and apparently this... Is this just him being a Me Too? Is, is that what this is? I mean, isn't the entire existence of Samsung being a Me Too? Well... For, for different people that they're following, right? I mean, to be fair, you could say that about most companies in the tech industry. Uh, you know, wherever the trends are going, companies go there, even Apple. Uh, but Samsung has a reputation for... Uh, Apple tends to set the tone in, in the technology industry. And even when they don't enter into a market, companies um, start pushing into certain areas because they're afraid Apple's going to get in there and they want to get the edge. And so Apple has pre-announced, you know, with a six month lead time, the uh, HomePod. And so a report came out this week saying that uh, they're going to have their own smart speaker to take on Alexa and, and HomePod and Google Assistant and everything else. And it's going to be powered by Samsung's own voice control platform, which is called Bixby. But what's, re- what's really funny about this to me is Bixby was supposed to launch in in the spring. In fact, Samsung was so confident about Bixby that they dedicated a hardware button on the Galaxy S8, their flagship phone, to invoking Bixby. Um, the, the, the problem with that is Bixby hasn't launched yet. We're into July, and uh, the reports are saying at the very earliest, it'll be late July before Bixby launches in the U.S. It's only available in South Korea right now uh, because Bixby doesn't understand English very well. <laughs> so uh, so there's a dedicated button for Bixby. There's a speaker in the works for Bixby, and yet Bixby can't talk to you if you live in the United States. Well, or England for that matter. Or England, the, or, or huge swaths of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing about Bixby is before Samsung started talking about Bixby, they made the purchase of a company that makes something called Viv. Yeah. And, and Viv was another assistant that was supposed to be very smart. And it had great mm-hmm. demonstrations and was native English. So a lot of people are saying that the the Viv purchase must not have been a good purchase, that Viv must not have been all that it said it was, or we would have had English Bixby by now. Right. My thought is that, and this is my speculation, is that Bixby is not based on Viv, that, that Bixby is based on S-Voice, which was a previous thing that right. Samsung was doing. And that's why it's been so difficult to get S-Voice reworked for native English, that it was never I mean, designed it, for an internationalization. It, it makes sense. I mean, think about 
if you have an established platform and then you buy another platform, trying to merge those two is a nightmare. And think about any time that Apple makes acquisitions and then the brain drain that happens. They they hire, you know, the guys who made Siri are like, all right, we're out of here. They all leave. They all go do their own thing because in the end, it's not really their platform anymore. You got to play nice with a big corporation. And so, you know, I'm sure that Samsung had invested a lot into S-Voice, and I'm sure there's internal politics at play, and I'm sure that there's technological incompatibilities and all kinds of stuff. So the fact that Viv didn't necessarily help them get to the English market as fast as they would have liked shouldn't really come as a surprise because they probably had invested a lot of time and money into their S-Voice, and and that's probably leading the way in terms of development. Also interesting is, is when you're as big as Samsung and you make as many acquisitions as Samsung, all of those separate units kind of still live on their own. Yeah. For instance, Harman Kardon, right? JBL and Harman Kardon are ones that are, it's, it's one group that Samsung purchased. They're big in automotive. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cars that are out there with Harman Kardon provided uh, audio systems. They're also big in home audio. They were working on a speaker called the Invoke that hosts Microsoft's Cortana AI. You know, there's, there's it's a very good question as to whether or not Samsung pushes down to, to Harman Kardon and says, make Invoke also run Bixby. Yeah. When you're as big as Samsung and you have as many different units going on, many different departments and, and acquisitions going on, it, it it's like you say, it takes a while to integrate these things. Yeah, and they're a big conglomerate. I mean, is Samsung pushing their washing machine division to run Bixby too? No, the fridge. I mean, they make they make every, they make all of it. <laughs> the, yes, you know, uh, I met with uh, some of the Jaybird guys when I went to the um, uh, Logitech event last week, um, and it's it's easy to forget that Logitech bought Jaybird because they still operate pretty much independently, brand kind of independently. Um, and the guys there were telling me that Logitech basically makes lets them do their own thing, and that may have just been them selling it to the press or whatever. But the way the guy portrayed it to me was that, you know, they're under the Logitech umbrella and now they got some more money to play with, but Logitech lets them do their own thing. And I I think that there's some, you know, some form of a symbiotic relationship there where uh, Logitech wasn't really competing in the workout headphone space, which is where Jaybird plays. You know, Logitech is more of the home theater space. So uh, perhaps there's a good match there, filling a void of something that they weren't, you know, necessarily already... Uh, working on, but some of these acquisitions, you know, you see, uh, and 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 they come into a company, and there's already an established platform there, and you wonder, like, how well can you integrate in not only a corporate culture, but just from a product perspective, um, whether it's software or hardware, you know, whatever you're shipping, um, to, to put that out there, uh, you wonder how well some of these acquisitions play out internally. It's true, and of course, there's always the fallout when an acquisition doesn't take place. I'm I'm thinking of imagination mm-hmm. where you know we, we'd heard that apple was said to be in talks to acquire imagination last year no deal got made and now imagination is you know talking about how they're not even sure that apple can make their own gpu without infringing on imagination's ip and and obviously we don't know what happened behind the scenes but we probably have a good idea if it went down went down right Apple bought um, uh, what was the company that they bought uh, back in like 2008? Um, uh, the name is escaping me right now, but that was what laid the groundwork for them to build their first A series chips, uh, which debuted first in the iPad in 2010. Um, 
Uh, man, I can't think of the name right now. But they they purchased a company in 2008. Is that PA Semi? Uh, yep, PA Semi. And uh, Apple Insider actually broke that story many years ago. Uh, but so they 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 bought PA Semi. That kind of laid the groundwork for them to start heavily customizing the ARM reference designs to a point now where people that know these types of things say that it's really not very much ARM reference design in Apple's chips. They're they're very customized in, in these chips, and so. When Apple's looking to buy imagination and they're in talks with one another, you know, as part of the due diligence process, I'm sure Apple gets to come in and kind of see what imagination is working on. And I have to wonder if Apple went in, saw the GPUs, the mobile GPUs that imagination was making, went back to Cupertino and huddled up and said, uh, actually, we could do this better ourselves. We don't really need to pay them any money for this. Um, and then walk away from the deal and then imagination freaks out and says, you know, that, that Apple stole their intellectual property or whatever. But, um, you know, you have to wonder if the, be, be very careful. Imagination is not saying that yet. Imagination is saying we don't know how they could possibly make something without potentially infringing. Yeah. I mean, uh, imagination has been, uh, this is a little inside baseball, but behind the scenes, they've been very aggressive, even in our own reporting on Apple Insider, uh, reaching out and trying to get corrections where corrections were not even due, uh, taking dispute with uh, certain things. Like at one point where we wrote a story that talked about a bunch of hires that Apple had taken from imagination, uh, they, they uh, recruited a bunch of people. And, you know, we portrayed it as, uh, you know, a number of people and, and imagination didn't like it being portrayed that way. So, you know, I mean, they're a little sensitive and I think that's because they see kind of that they're maybe in a little bit of trouble. Um, and so that's kind of where they're rattling the sabers and saying, uh, suggesting that there could be some sort of IP infringement. Um, and some of the basis that for that could be the hires that Apple made uh, saying, you know, that they took proprietary stuff with them or whatever. That, that's all speculation at this point. We'll see how it plays out. But I think the ship has sailed. Uh, Apple is no longer going to be using imagination in future GPUs. Presumably, they're just going to do it in-house with their own uh, talent that they have for chips. And uh, I think that that spells a lot of trouble for imagination. I agree. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss this week, Neil? Mm, I think we have covered most of it. Uh, I did want to, I guess I can mention very quickly, um, iFixit is now selling a battery replacement kit for the MacBook Pro with Retina display. The models between 2000, uh, that released between 2012 and 2015. Uh, this is one of those things that uh, I thought was funny and covered it just because the market for these types of things is mostly gone. I suppose it's a proof of concept for iFixit. But uh, if you really want to replace the battery on your uh, older laptop, uh, Apple charges $200. So you can pay $100 to iFixit for a kit, tear open your laptop, risk screwing it up and having to remove adhesive and pouring a chemical on there to get the battery to come out and all this crap. Or you can just pay Apple the $200 and save yourself the time and the heartache. So if your battery is failing on your MacBook Pro, you should probably just take it to Apple. Fair point. Well, this is the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and with me is Neil. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can read my musings on appleinsider.com, and you can find me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. And I'm Victor, and you can listen to me here, and also on tapewrite.com slash at scout. Thank you, and we'll be back with more next week.